This is Anatomy of Addiction. I'm Marilyn Spiller. On episode one, we're starting with the basics. We'll answer the questions, what is addiction? What exactly happens to your brain when you have a substance use disorder? Why me? The warning signs of addiction. And how do therapists break through all the defenses of those in active addiction? With me today are two people who are highly qualified to answer these questions. My special guests are Ray Green. Ray's a lawyer and addiction therapist. She's also the founder and president of Sanford Addiction Treatment Centers in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we also have Sanford's chief clinical officer, Jenny Sellant. Our sponsor perhaps this won't be surprising to you, is Sanford Addiction Treatment Centers. Sanford is a residential and outpatient facility located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Sanford offers excellence in evidence-based practice models in a home-like restorative setting. For information about Sanford, go to sanfordhousegr.com or for specific information about programming, 844-776-9651. And without further ado, Anatomy of Addiction presents The Brain Science of Addiction 101. And Jenny. Morning, Mary. Morning. Um, since we're talking about uh, substance use disorders or addiction today, I thought we could start with the American Society of Addiction Medicine's definition. That's ASAM. Um, and their, their, their definition of addiction is addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. People with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. Prevention efforts and treatment approaches for addiction are generally as successful as those for other chronic diseases. So, Ray, let's start with you. How would you add to that definition or maybe even simplify it? It's a little bit. You know, I'm going to show a little bit um, and tell you that addiction is defined by compulsive use. uh, And that compulsive use is driven by progressive brain changes. There's a defining feature in substance use disorder, and that is a loss of control and impairment in the executive function of the brain. So one thing that's in that definition that's worth plucking out and noting is the word medical disease. So, you know, what addiction is not is it is not a moral failing. It's not a character flaw as it's been viewed throughout history. And to some degree, it still is today. But we now view it as a medical disease, particularly since 2016 in the landmark report of the Surgeon General. 
And the other thing that ACM said prior to the definition they came out with that you just read, Marilyn, um, is that this disease is about brains, not drugs. It's about underlying neurology and not outward actions. Rather, it is a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and all of the circuitry that's related to that. And so when I talk to our clients and we do a group on neurobiology, I tend to simplify that um, ASAM definition down. And I'd be happy to share that with you if you'd like me to. I'd love you to share that. Okay. So what I do is I take a picture of the brain and I mark up the three main components involved with this disease. And the first one is the old brain. So if you imagine a little brain and at the back brainstem area of that brain is the old brain or the primal brain. And this part of the brain is the part that allowed us to survive and evolve. It is the um, eat, sleep, procreate, all of those survival compulsions that drive us. And so I label that sort of the caveman part of the brain. And then you've got, as we evolve as humans, the frontal lobe, and that frontal lobe is the executive director. And that is the decision-making part of the brain, our rational thinking. And in between those two is a little set of glands called the nucleus accumbens. And this is the reward reinforcement center, the heart of the reward reinforcement system. So if you think of Pavlov's dogs and the um, triggering of, uh, you know, the treat coming, everybody's had a psych class in high school or that, where you know about um, the subconscious reward system. And that's what the nucleus accumbens is. And that is called, you know, well, that's what I call the frat house of the brain. So what happens is a psychoactive substance first hits the old part of the brain, the caveman. Caveman sends a message to frat house. This is fun. Do it again. And that reward works um, to, you know, in, in, in rewarding the pleasure part of the brain. And then the executive director comes in and says, yeah, this is great, but be rational, slow down, don't have another one, you know, happy hours over. But as this system progresses, the caveman's message gets stronger. That's as if there's an accelerator on the um, presser foot of this reward system. And that's what drives the compulsive use. So this is the progression of the disease. So what happens is the executive director starts to fall asleep at the wheel. The caveman gets in control and that's where the defining feature or the loss of control comes in. And if I can add to that too, I think what, one of the ways that I also like to just kind of simplify it down to what happens as a result of everything that Ray just described is there becomes an association between the substance and survival in the brain. The exactly. brain thinks it's not saying it in those words. So we might not recognize it consciously, but it's sending the same types of messages in the brain. You need this for survival. You need the substance for survival. You need the substance for survival. And that's why the executive director goes to sleep because they're, they're, it, the only focus becomes survival. 
Mm-hmm. And the brain thinks that there's always a threat and it needs it needs the substance to survive. That's why I'm assuming we, you know, as a person in recovery myself, um, is, is that why we uh, hide our substance of use? Sure. Stockpile. For sure. If you were um, a caveman in your cave and you had some little berries that you needed to survive, you know, you're not going to share them. You know, you're not going to, you're going to, and you know, you can, you can come up with a, so many, I mean, people write their biographies on these crazy hiding uh, stories, but, and, and when, when someone gets into, you know, their, their recovery journey, they're like, how could I have done that? But when you think about it as being a compulsion that is as strong as the will to survive, of course, you're going to hide and do anything you can. And your focus becomes very narrow on that substance, acquiring that substance and using that substance and all else falls to the wayside relationships, um, you know, teacher, parent, teacher meetings, uh, work, um, anything that, um, hobbies, hobbies. yeah. 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 I I remember I used to hide, um, wine bottles in my winter boots and as, as, (laughs) <laughs> just a, a note, um, they make really good boot trees, you know, <laughs> you keep your boot upright in your closet pretty well. well. There's a great story in um, in the book Lit by Mary Carr, and she's a brilliant writer. She's a journalist as well. And she tells the story of being at um, a 12-step meeting and a, a, a beautifully dressed woman gets up and shares her hiding story about the bottle in the carcass of her frozen turkey. And when she couldn't pull the bottle out of the frozen carcass, she just picked up the entire carcass and drank (laughs) out of the back end of the turkey. And in her mind said, you know, is this normal use? So (laughs) that that little caveman goes to great lengths to, um, to hide and use the substance of choice. Yeah. So you were a prepper, Mayor. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me let me ask you this, um, Jenny, because I think that, again, as a person in recovery, I'm probably not the only person who would ever ask this question. But why me? How did this happen? What you know, what what are the um, um, what are the reasons? You know, what 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 should people be looking out for? Um, You know, I, I mean, I know that if I don't ever take a drink, I'm not going to have an alcohol use disorder. Correct. Yep. Correct. But you may still have the vulnerabilities for it. So one of the things that that ACM definition talked a little bit about was um, life experiences, um, among some other things. And I think the the vulnerability factors are really key for a couple of reasons. So different vulnerability factors are things like environment and genetics, um, traumatic stress, Uh, Due to things like discrimination, marginalization, financial insecurity, chronic family conflict, um, chronic pain, adverse childhood experiences, we're learning so much about how those are um, drastically increasing vulnerability for many chronic health problems, including addiction. And so what happens is what makes an individual so vulnerable, if you think about it, is that um, substances have the ability to cause sort of a flood of dopamine in the brain. And we love and need dopamine to survive as humans. And if you have an individual that maybe has some deficits already in that 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 very important commodity of dopamine, then when they get that flood, it's like, oh, 
holy Moses, this is what I've been missing my whole life. Right. It makes life. them feel normal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It brings them up to that level yep. of normal. So they want it even more. Um, and so maybe somebody who, who doesn't have those deficits isn't going to have as big of a response to it. It's still intense. It's like, it has the capacity to have a dopamine release. That's like, that's like equivalent or higher than like some of the most intimate attachment experiences, like holding your baby for the first time. It's important to understand that, that that's what's going on in the brain. And that's why you get that survival use association. And if you already are prone to maybe some deficits in dopamine because of a mental health issue, or just genetically prone to some of those chemical imbalances, or you have adverse childhood experiences that have caused some of those deficits like and caused that that chronic stress causes those things then um then you're more vulnerable to it you're just hungry for that dopamine is basically Marilyn can I add something in about genetic predisposition sure so there are many studies out there but one in particular says that if you have one parent who uh, struggles with substance use disorder um, that your increase in genetic propensity is 34%. If you have two parents that, that are vulnerable, that increase can be up to 400%. And if you have two parents and a grandparent, that that can be up to 900%. You know, so addiction can, uh, substance use disorder or addiction can happen to anyone, but up to 50% of that risk can be due to genetic inheritability. Um. This is this is very interesting to me, and and something that that Jenny said is is prompting a sort of off-piste question here. But do you guys remember the movie um, with Tom Hanks, where he was marooned on an island, and he uh, a, 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 he he began to have this very intense relationship with Wilson, the <laughs> what was it, a, a basketball or something like that. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, you're talking about relationships and you're talking about how somehow your brain's telling you that this substance is so important to you. It's almost like having a relationship with this inanimate thing. I mean, it can't love you back, right? Mm-hmm. But it's doing something for you that's keeping you alive, basically. And that's, um, and that, that's what your brain is telling you. I mean, we need dopamine as humans. We have to have it to survive. So when you start to associate a substance or anything with dopamine, then, then our brain is, tells us that's what we need for survival. And when you um, think of it in that chemical um, way, when you stop using uh, your body has likely stopped producing yeah. dopamine. So that is the struggle in early recovery is that your chemistry is a little out of whack. And the dopamine is also very important with um, the executive director waking up. And that takes some time. So early recovery can be a bit lumpy with um, the brain healing and that dopamine getting back into working order and the executive director coming back. So it's not uncommon, well, it's, it's actually very common that people in early days of recovery, you know, decision-making can be challenging. Um, 
you know, relational issues, uh, things like that, because, you know, you think, okay, I'm going to stop using, I'm back to where I used to be, but that isn't the case. The, the um, journey recovery is progressive just as the disease is progressive. Um, you're both addiction therapists or you, you um, work with people with substance use disorders all the time. How Exactly. Does therapy break through all of this, uh, particularly, I guess, group therapy? But but, um, you know, how, how do you sort of rewrite this 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 broken or um, um, hijacked brain? So there's a lot of things that therapy can do to start forging new and healthier neural pathways. So like what what Ray was talking about, we get an overload of sort of neural pathways or highways headed toward the lower regions of the brain. <laughs> and we want to now forge new pathways up toward the higher regions of the brain to bring our um, animal instincts and our human nature back together um, so that they're all on board. And so, um, so there's a number of things. The group therapy, the... Um, the experience of being with other people in that group who have been through something similar can helps reduce some of the shame and talk about those experiences, have that, that attachment connection within the group around this experience that in and of itself starts to produce some of that healing that we're talking about for the brain. Some of those really good neural pathways that now the relationships and these connections with humans are starting to replace what the substance was um, providing. And then with therapy, um, I mean, there's a number of, even in individual therapy and those kind of things, there's a number of things that are happening that are, again, promoting that healing process. Some of it is um, just, I mean, I love to just bring my, the people that I'm working with as much information as possible to empower them with more conscious choices of what can I do to, to promote this healing process? What are the skills I can use? What are the things I can incorporate into my life that will promote this healing in my brain to, um, to happen? So um, it's some of it's the education. A lot of it's just the relationship between the therapist and the individual um, to break down some of those defenses that have formed and protect those protective defenses that have formed so that we can start to, again, form those neural pathways up to the higher regions of the brain. And, and Right. If you, if you use the analogy of um, a construction zone, you know, you've gone from um, the highway where you're speeding along and then the journey of recovery starts um, in a bit of a construction zone. And, you know, we've all driven through, you know, go slow and the orange flags and, um, it's not necessarily pretty or fun, but as the work continues, it gets um, more pleasant. So that construction zone starts to take form in a, a new road. And um, eventually, you know, you get wildflowers on the side of the road and it becomes more attractive. But that really is the work that's being done is like a construction zone in its early phases. Mm -hmm. And we've learned a lot about um, we've changed how therapy um, is 
is done with people that are struggling with addiction. We've learned a lot about that. I mean, it used to be very confrontational, right? And now that we understand about neuroscience, uh-huh. that doesn't really um, regulate those lower brain regions the way that we need them to regulate, but a safe relationship, a validating, empathetic, caring relationship does promote regulation of those lower brain regions, therefore promoting those right. neural pathways to be able to be activated in the higher brain regions as well. But what, what would a, what would be an example of a confrontational style versus a, a you know caring? So one thing um, to keep in mind is that there is a place for confrontation and ultimatums and supportive and supportive safe, safe relationship. Yes. So you know when someone is um, is in active progressed disease state sometimes the only motivation is going to be external and that may come in the form of a confrontation intervention, um, but done with love and done with support and caring. So, uh, so that, that often plays a role, but it, it doesn't necessarily play a role into the therapeutic atmosphere when someone gets to treatment. And that's where we have learned that um, this shaming confrontation to try to motivate a different behavior actually just causes more dysregulation. Right. Um, yeah. Well, it wouldn't be a discussion probably about addiction or substance use disorders without at least mentioning, and we'll go into this in, in um, upcoming episodes in more detail, but without mentioning relapse. And, you know, we, we've painted this picture now of, of, um, of a brand new highway um, and the neural pathways repairing themselves. Can you talk just a little bit about what relapse is and as a chronic disease, is it something that a person in recovery should expect? Sure. The um, relapse or recurrence of this disease, 50% of those happen in the first 90 days. And that is the most vulnerable time when the brain is healing. And there are, um, there are three main triggers during this period of time. And that is, uh, one is spontaneous um, cravings. And that is just a misfiring of the brain while you're in that construction zone and rebuilding. The second one is stress. Stress produces a hormone cortisol, and that actually zooms up to the brain and bangs on the frat house door. So there's a physical craving associated with stressors. And then the third one is people, places, and things, because there are such strong technicolor memories of using. So, um, uh, you know, the the time of of vulnerability is in those early days of um, recovery and abstinence. And then Jenny, did you want to add something about relapse? I mean, that, you know, that, that we protect people. It's, it's the recovery oriented system of care where it isn't just episodic treatment anymore. We know now that this is um, management of a disease. So through those, particularly those early days and on maybe for years, I mean, that you're right, Marilyn, that's an entirely um, separate discussion. Um, But, but our role as a treatment center is to provide a treatment plan, um, including, you know, support group meetings, 12-step meetings, all of those recovery-oriented systems of care throughout those early days. Mm -hmm. And and a relapse or recurrence 
is something that, and that's viewed with almost greater stigma than the disease itself. You know, someone relapses and it looks as if it's just a careless, you know, misstep. When in fact, for therapists, for us, that is data saying, all right, something's not going right. How do we rework this? What else do we need to do? Yeah. Yeah. It takes time for the brain to heal. And when um, those neural pathways become so entrenched that they're like ditches and you're you're in the process of trying to bushwhack new roads <laughs> right you know there are days and there's going to be triggers and there's going to be things that cause um you <laughs> that more well i like that i like that visual image of bushwhacking through <laughs> through a big big field of weeds right <laughs> well when i tell clients you know after this lecture i say you know i don't use the word courage lightly um, it takes a lot of courage to bushwhack your way through this. And, um, and that, that's not an overstatement. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, a, a great place to, um, to, to leave this. Uh, all I can say is I wish I had you two in my corner uh, eight years ago when I, uh, when I was uh, embarking on this, this long journey. So um, thank you very much. Thanks. And, Mary uh, have a good day. Have a great day. Talk again. Thanks. Bye.